0: Welcome to Alchemist X, Innovators Inside, the official podcast of Alchemist X, the corporate services division of the Alchemist Accelerator. Alchemist X operates corporate programs for spin ins and spin outs. Here on AXII, you'll follow host Rachel Chalmers, head of Alchemist X, as she talks to corporate innovation's highest achievers and most compelling thought leaders. These are fly-on-the-wall conversations with leading practitioners in the field. They'll share their lessons learned so that you can accelerate your development. So sit back, relax, and get ready to level up.
1: Today, I'm so thrilled to welcome to the podcast, Brad Henriksen. Brad's a leadership coach and the co-organizer of the San Francisco CTO Club. He's the former CTO of Scoop Technologies and VP of Engineering at Earnest, which was acquired by Naviant, and Keen.io, which was acquired by Scaleworks. Brad co-founded two startups of his own, Shotwell Products and Zusk, which was acquired by Spark Networks. He has a computer science degree from the University of Washington and spent six years at Microsoft. Brad, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you.
2: Yeah, it's great to be here, Rachel. Thanks for having me.
1: Tell us about the San Francisco CTO Club.
2: So I really love the San Francisco CTO Club. We've built this fantastic community of technical leaders in the Bay Area. Really open group. We have a lot of discussions around variety of different topics. We've been going for about five years. We'll cover topics like founding companies, mental health, organizational maturation. It's a place for all of us to help really develop in our thinking in startups and how we think about our practice as leaders within, within those organizations. For me, it's been a fantastic space to help develop my practice and also just build a community that's really passionate about bringing technology and driving change in industry.
1: What would you say are the top three issues on CTO's minds these days?
2: Well, this last year, as I think a lot of us have been really aware of, there's been a lot of challenges in our personal lives and also in our professional lives. So there have been a lot of challenges that we've been looking at, whether it be balancing our work and personal lives and how we think about our mental health. That's been a very active forefront one because we've been very driven by our stories and these organizations that have been trying to build throughout this period of time. And it's been hard to figure out how to do that, especially as an executive. How do we navigate those things? How do we think what works for us? What works for our larger community? So that's been one of the really big ones that's been recurrent. A second one that's really come up a lot is people have been trying to figure out with remote work, how do we think about hiring? How do we attract talent? And this is kind of a perennial topic. This topic has been around as long as I've been involved in industry as you try to figure out the way to navigate this, but it's really shifted a lot. It used to be a lot more about how do I bring people into my Bay Area company? How do I attract people to that opportunity? To how do we hire people in a variety of different locales and onboard them in a way that really makes sense and integrate them into integrate and have them be additive to our company cultures. That's been an important second one that's, I think, a little bit more unique to this last year. And a third one has been organizational maturation. So how do you deal with organizational growth and contraction with some of the different changes we've seen this last year? There's been a lot more of that than you would typically see, a lot more vacillation in terms of the company's rate of growth or contractions as well.
1: And all those three issues make me think about precarity. Even the least ego-driven technical leaders are invested in our narrative because we want to make sure that we get the gig after next and the gig after that. We want to still be able to provide for our families. The challenges with hiring and with hiring remotely are how do we guarantee people's well-being? How do we give them some kind of job security in a market that is so volatile?
2: I think that's very much true. There has been this precariousness through this last period. And I think it's absolutely a lot more from people to step up to that and understand how we're going to navigate that. That's just been one of these pieces I don't think any of us really saw coming for this last year. I think creating new companies and new offerings into the market has always been kind of a precarious thing, but now it's coming even closer to home in terms of how do we actually navigate that. It's really important this last year to have invested in community and, and finding support to be able to be successful in that for yourself, for your career, and for those in your community.
1: I've got to say what a delightful and refreshing thing it is to hear a man talk about the importance of mental health in the workplace and that how you manage your mental health is a qualifier, a key component of how you model leadership. I think women in the industry as the embattled gender have long had back channels and ways to band together and share resources. I love to see men stepping up and doing some of that work for themselves as well. Is it difficult to overcome the taboos about talking about these kinds of things?
2: In my journey, I'd say that yes, for me. When I first started an in industry, I very much had this attitude of, I'm just gonna soldier through this or I'm going to tough it out. And there was a lot of attitude around ideas of grit and like this very masculine way of talking about being a leader in technology. And so it took a lot of work, internal work, Finding support to be able to change some of that lens and really and really come around to thinking about self care and community in a way that was outside of just myself right for myself but also for for people around me so it wasn't intuitive for me I don't think it's intuitive for a lot of people as they're getting to, particularly in the engineering field um, as people are starting to to come up so it definitely took. A lot of work for me to get there and it wasn't necessarily the first thing that would come to mind as challenges would appear when I was starting.
1: Right. I really hear that because I spent the first 20 years of my career soldiering through the hard times as well and I I don't think women are naturally more nurturing. I think we're forced into it by circumstance. You eventually realize that you're reacting from a place of damage and all of the, the the hits that you've taken and you have to deconstruct all of that to be present for people in a real way. But I think there is a growing awareness that we need to dismantle those because when you find yourself treating younger people coming into the industry the way you were treated that you hated at the time, if you have a shred of self-awareness, you've got to try and push back against those implanted impulses to do harm.
2: Yeah, I very much agree. Right, I think a lot of the responsibility for making sure that we create a workplace that really supports people, however they show up or whatever their biases are, that we end up help supporting people along that way. And so it's really, I think, coming on on those of us who've been around for a while to make sure that that holds true. Like we don't, I don't want to passed down sort of those experiences, some of them which were really positive, frankly, but some of the more negative ones to people who are now coming to the industry.
1: More generally, what has holding CTO and VP engineering positions taught you about innovation, about how to bring new products to market?
2: It's a great question. First thing that I would say is that I come to this from a technologist perspective. I've been involved in technology for a very long time. And so for the longest while for me, it very much started with technology and I, I kind of moved around to what's the innovation, what's the thing that we're trying to realize in the world. And what I've really learned is if you really want to think about innovation and technology, you have to start with what's the thing that we want to bring into the world? What is this audacious idea that I believe is possible? Not, maybe not even possible, but that I dream that I wish was was actually realized something that would delight and exceed customers' expectations. You have to start there. If you start with, this is the well-contained problem that we're at. It's a problem that we have today. and I'm going to make it 10% better. You're really not going to be driving that innovative idea that truly creates that step function change, which creates impact for for customers and for people and really changes the world around us. One of the quotes I find really interesting here is from William Gibson, which is the future is already here, just not evenly distributed. Looking at the environment around you and dreaming of what's possible, there's more that's possible than I think most of us realize on a daily basis. And starting there and then moving to how do we want to realize that what's possible? What's there for us to learn is a really key way to do it. If you start with where you are today, you're going to see all the barriers and everything that gets into the way for you to realize your dream. And so you got to start with the dream and then work backwards. And you know, I think you'll really surprise yourself. I certainly surprised myself in some ways and what's possible for teams to accomplish if you, if you do that technology is not an end in of itself. It's just something which helps you orient on creating that impact.
1: I love when people pull in science fiction references, because I think what gets lost in implementing technology is precisely that imagination, that vision, that boldness to bring into being things that don't exist yet. And I think more of us in technology than we necessarily admit are inspired by folks like Gibson and Kim Stanley Robinson and Bruce Sterling, who have audacious versions of the future that sound really good and that we want to build towards.
2: It's been very influential for me in a lot of ways in terms of dreaming of what's possible, but it's also very somewhat at odds of the engineering mindset where there's like this very very grounded I'm creating something tangible in the world that must work, which is very separate from this big dream audacity that's present with a lot of that science fiction writing. And I think another really fascinating piece of science fiction, which leads into innovation, is that there's a lot of thinking about how does societies function in science fiction. Right. At the end of the day, if you're a business that's trying to create something that creates change, that change doesn't lie in the technology, it lies in society. And so it changes some of the framing, in my opinion, in terms of where are you thinking about things? What are the ideas that you're playing with. And then you can root back at the technology.
1: So I've got to both agree and disagree. I mean, you're completely right that when you're coding just to implement a function, you're pretty narrowly focused on your OKRs and your KPIs, and, and it's just a algorithm in, algorithm out type function. But when you look back to the great early thinkers of computer science, people like Dijkstra and the creators of Unix, they were systems thinkers by definition they thought about networks and they thought about network effects and the social impacts of technology in a way that we kind of lost and i do wonder if it's because as tech became more and more profitable we had the cynical finance bros all come in and make everything about money we lost respect for those soft skills those social skills and respect for the visions that could grow out of them.
2: I certainly think there's been a lot of large shifts in terms of how we've oriented around our technology. I was watching something ventured the other day for a discussion, and it was really fascinating to go back some of those parts around how capital is introduced. But I think there's something very true to what you're talking about. This idea of earlier on, there was like a I hesitate to use the word pure, but I'm going to use it. There's a little bit more of a pure ideation and playing with ideas of what was possible. These ideas around what we could do in artificial intelligence in the summer. There are a lot of just really fascinating pieces, of the creation of Unix, as you're talking about. There was these great ideas that people were bringing to bear about what was possible to be done. And I think a lot of that did change. Nowadays, I think a lot of people in the computer science field and in sort of the software development field they're they're trying to think about great ideas but they're also the whole container in the landscape a lot of that gets framed by returns yes right like what is the thing that we're building what's the revenue that's attached for it and i don't think when they're saying we're going to create artificial intelligence in a summer they're like and there'll be this big monetary return on the other side of it it was more pure research idea or, uh, with creating some of these great systems like Unix, it was what is a vision for an operating system that we think would be really incredible. I think the landscape has shifted quite a lot from where it once was.
1: Another science fiction book I like to quote is Werner uh, Avenger's A Deepness in the Sky, in which one of the characters, Fam, his title is he's a software archeologist and he's digging through the software systems on his starship. And he finds that the system clock started when humans first walked on the moon. And you realize that within a degree of um, margin of error, He's talking about Unix. It's the Unix clock that started in 1970 and has been going into this far future. And it's completely plausible because we already have Unix systems running on other planets. And you think about the vision with which those men put together a system so open and flexible and adaptable that we're still running it 50 years later and will probably be running it thousands of years in the future. That's the kind of ambition in a very practical sense that, that drew me into the tech industry in the first place and that I'm always drawn to. When I find it in other people,
2: that makes a lot of sense to me. I believe we've lost some of that in the current day and age. There's such a rapidity to how we create things today that the long term mindset to envision where you're going to be in a long down the line, from my perspective, requires space, requires not being in this point of threat of like how do i get this thing across the line you need to be like back up from the time pressure and say what's possible for us to realize that's always been my perspective about it in my journey i spent a lot of time in the like hey what's the thing i need to get across the line what's the next quarter what's the next six months and it's taken a while to shift to this longer perspective of like where do we really want to be what's the what's the larger vision of it I think I largely agree with you in terms of that lens.
1: I really wanted to ask about your coaching practice. I'm doing a lot of coaching of our accelerator teams at the moment. What are your coaching clients struggling with the most these days?
2: Some of this overlaps with some of the things people are seeing within San Francisco CTO club. So there's definitely the overcoming burnout piece, which has become very prevalent. There's been a lot of people who are working around the clock, particularly if they have offices in a variety of different time zones. I know some companies have some people working in Pacific time and people in India, and so it's just all around the clock. And the barriers to work have all completely dropped. And so there have been a lot of people who've just been going through the cycle, and not figuring out how to rejuvenate for themselves, how to carve out their space. And so that's been one of these recurrent themes in the people I've been working with is how do you actually deal with that? How do you actually create that space? How do you make sure that you're feeling recharged? So that's a significant one. Another one, because a lot of the companies I'm talking about are in this growth phase. So there's a lot of questions about like, how do we deal with the next stage? How do we deal with my organization doubling in size? How do I think about organizational structures? How do I think about my role as a leader? And interestingly, I find a lot of these two these two topics I'm mentioning really overlap. What I'm seeing from people is that they have these narratives and stories about what they should be doing. And as more fuel gets put on the fire, they just keep bringing on more and more to them to help grow with the company. And so their stories that they show up with to their job of, I need to do this, I need to do X, Y, and Z, and I should be doing all of these things. And I can't drop any of them contributes to the burnout. Right. And so I've seen a lot of people who are struggling with this growth, no good boundaries with time, or not finding ways to restore themselves. And they're in a position where they can do so much great impact, and they're paying the price on every single side. And people are having a hard time finding the support that they need to navigate that for themselves. So that's been a very consistent theme with people I've been working with, is navigating that piece of it, particularly with executives, in which case that they feel so closely aligned to what their company is doing, what their team is doing.
1: That's the thing. We're socialized so strongly to peg our sense of self-worth to whether or not we meet the expectations we place on ourselves. And at the same time, there's all of this societal pressure to place completely unreasonable expectations on ourselves. and you just can't square that circle you end up in a place of i am not worth anything because i am not doing all of the work in the world and that's not a useful place to be
2: exactly and i think we pay we pay very high cost for this but also those around us and the things that we care about pay a high cost and there's like there's a lot of elements here To me around identity and self and self worth that that tie in a lot of this, which gets very intertwined when we're building something like we have this audacity to dream something that we want to bring into the world and we want to do it and we believe we can create an incredible change. And we believe that we're the tip of the spear to create that to realize that in the world. And there's also this odd piece where we say, so we have to pay this massive personal cost on the way. It's like, let's see what's really true here. Let's see what's important for people to stand for. What are the stories I'm bringing to the table that I have to do this thing, that you know, I'm a failure if this doesn't succeed, that the only way to solve this problem is X. These are all stories we bring to the table that might not be serving us for the things that we're really trying to accomplish. And so it's important in my coaching practice To help people to start to examine some of these things and figure out a way to orient themselves forward into the future in a way that helps serve them, their mission, and their community.
1: The narrative we don't hear, and it's certainly the story of my career, is I tried to do too much. I failed horribly. I burned out really hard. I had to take a year off. And I'm so grateful that that happened because everything that's happened since has been informed by it and has been better because of it. A more compassionate leader, I have more prescience. I, I can see problems coming further in advance. I lean on that experience every day.
2: Yeah, I can I can very much relate to that. I had this experience in rear building in Seuss. I was there for five years, around five years, maybe a little bit more. And I I put myself completely on the line there. Every moment of my day, except for the moments where I go rock climbing to recharge, it was like my one, basically a six-month detox where my body, like I just put the computers away, just went outdoors, traveled the world, and I just needed to reboot. And it was a clear sign to me that the way I was operating was not sustainable for myself, thus paying this incredible cost. And there's a lesson that I've carried with me ever since then. In a similar way, it sounds like you have. I'm so proud and so excited about the things that I accomplished there. And at the same time, there are much better ways I could have approached a lot of what was going on. And it unfortunately, it took me putting myself right on the line and paying the personal cost to start gaining some insight and say, no, I'm not going to go there again. There's a different way to operate. And part of my coaching practice really orients around how do I help people to build that awareness and set themselves up for success. They don't get there.
1: I mean, if tech teaches us anything, it's that humans aren't machines and that Humans are really good at stuff machines aren't good at, like processing nuance and having intuition and being able to follow hunches. So it doesn't make any sense that we would treat humans as fungible machine parts that we can burn up and throw away. It's just economically irrational apart from everything else.
2: Oh, agreed. (laughs) Absolutely. I like to say that the most important aspect of creating a company or the people that are involved in it. That is it at the end of the day and the experience that you craft together. And so this notion of fungible human capital is just a very like disturbing notion to me personally, because it, it reduces people in a way that I find to be lacking respect for for everyone who shows up.
1: It's a delusion of the bankers. <laughs> Brad, when you look back on your work, what are you proudest of?
2: Well, for the things I talked about at Zeusk and, and for all the the times i put myself through i will say that the thing i'm absolutely most proudest of is the team that we built there it always comes back to people for me it doesn't matter like how much was raised or what exits looked like or of course i love the impact that we create with the with the products and and the and the companies that we're building but at the end of the day the piece that really resonates for me of being most proudest of is the communities that i've been a part of and helped to create. It's something which to me lasts on well past whatever engagement that I'm in. And without that, I'm just not interested in creating something. If you're like, hey, there's this incredible opportunity or this incredible thing we're gonna go do and I I go talk to the people and I'm like, yeah, this is not not what I wanna be a part of. It's almost always comes down to was it a match in terms of who is involved and who are the people that are there.
1: It really feels like community is our best countermeasure against the precarity we were talking about earlier. You know, you can't rely on distant bankers for your next gig, but you can work with people and want to work with them again and have them want to work with you again. And that's longevity in in our industry.
2: I think that's very true. And we learn from the people that are around us right yeah. like we we have so much we have so much to give each other and and support each other as we're doing these adventures on a daily basis with whether it be companies that we're advising or companies that we're building or uh, peer groups that we're, we're a part of without that it's you're just a mercenary out in market in some sense trying to like something into the world. But the only way that you're going to be able to create that impact or grow, gain insight or become better at your practice, from my perspective, is to be able to invest in that community. Um, And it really does create this longevity. And it's really incredible when you look back and you say, hey, I wonder what so-and-so is doing today, or you catch up on old stories. And it's always, to me, just really uh, heartwarming to go back and and see some of those things and also watch how our our past together intertwine into the future.
1: It's the best science fiction plot. A ragtag band of misfits becomes a found family. If you had one do-over, what would you do differently? Got a time travel device. You can go back and fix something.
2: Well, for me, it's finding more structured mentorship and coaching early on. I grew up in a family where there was very much of a independent figure it out. And we had our tribe of three brothers. And that mindset was very helpful for me, for sure. But it took me longer for me to kind of turn that corner from Brad solving the problem and moving it to how can we as a group solve the problem and creating more space for others. So there's a lot of solo grinding things out, taking a lot of responsibility and overloading myself, being harder on myself than I needed to be. And I think I paid a big cost for that. It also, at the same time, served me in a lot of different ways, but I think it would have been much better off and grown a lot faster with more structured, supported mentoring and coaching for example for myself personally i used to be a lot more conflict avoidant and so i'd try to be a a, kind of a if you know enneagram i'm an enneagram nine which is a peacemaker and so for me it was like okay i gotta avoid that conflict and that really didn't serve me because there's places where conflict was really important piece of do a part of the role especially as a leader and if you shy away from it the community is going to pay a big cost I used to get feedback, for example, once I started getting more coaching and support that I wasn't particularly approachable. And it would have really been helpful for me to gain more of that insight earlier on as opposed to putting on my hard hat and just trying to move through things. And so there's a number of pieces where I think getting more structured coaching and mentorship would have really helped me to have a better experience and also helped with my career and accelerated pieces of my career. I also think when there's this mental model I have in terms of time to get any signal back, So when you start a software development, you write some code, you compile it, or nowadays you have it interpreted, and then you can see if it worked or not. And so the feedback cycle is really fast, which means that you can get this feedback and learning little nuggets of wisdom or nuggets of knowledge pretty quickly and test your hypotheses in the world. With executive leadership, the lead time to getting signal back is way longer. So it might be six months, a year, maybe longer. Before you know if the thing that you did really worked, and there's a lot of different variables that are also entwining with it. So the rate of learning slows significantly. And I think you can help address some of that by getting some of this support as well.
1: That just sounds like your superhero origin story now. you putting forward into the world the coaching and, and mentorship that you wish you'd had when you were younger.
2: I think that's partially true. It's something which I've seen for myself to provide a lot of value. And when I talk to people, I see people who are struggling with their own challenges and could get that support that I couldn't find for myself when I was younger, I didn't have the foresight to say, this is something that would really serve me. And I I feel really grateful for the people that I work with in this space, because I think it is something which is really crucial for us as we continue to develop, as we develop as an industry and as we develop as individuals.
1: What do you think makes innovation so difficult?
2: It's interesting we touched a bit on changes in terms of how startups and how some innovation is being brought to market. Because I think that, while it also supercharges some of the innovation that happens, it creates this marketplace in some sense that allows there's capital that's being applied to it and allows people to be able to take some bets that they couldn't take beforehand. But at the same time, it can also create states of threat for people where people feel, hey, I need to just do this one thing and you get this one deal across the line and you get very caught up in the the day-to-day. You feel like you're in this threat state. When you're in a threat state, it's much harder to think out of the box. You get a lot more into the what is the immediate thing that I need to deliver, which is great from an operational perspective, but it isn't as great from this notion of, How do we think about the problems that we truly need to solve as a business? That requires headroom. That requires being in an environment where you don't have to constantly justify or rationalize your thinking. And if you're in an operational role, you end up spending a lot of your day probably thinking about how are we actually going to deal with execution? What are the realities on the ground? Innovation pays a cost as it gets paired with capital and the desire for us to get returns. And I think a lot of us in the schooling that we were brought up in was very much to here's a test that we need to pass. Mm -hmm. And so you learn how to solve to whatever the domain is, as opposed to actually, there's a different test that I'm going to answer. And I'm going to give you what the test is going to be. I'm going to come up with my own answers. And so I think there's kind of a, a two piece part here. One is I think we've gone to this world where we don't create enough headroom to think about where we really need to do to create that innovation because of the operational realities of running Mm -hmm. businesses. And then the second one, I think that in the educational side, at least that I was raised in, I think a lot of people were raised in, there was a let's try to get good grades and let's try to pass this test as -hmm. opposed to let's really explore and innovate and explore these ideas, which is a very different mindset, which is very, I think, crucial for successful innovation.
1: Yeah. I mean, as somebody with investor burnout, I'm going to say both of those aspects can be traced to impatient investors, people just not investing for the long term, not investing with enough ambition to give people that headroom and to let people explore the problem domain rather than answer the next immediate problem.
2: I think that's very true. And you you see companies that sort of play this pattern where they're, if you think about sort of the the sort of cycle of a lot of these companies, it's like Seed and Angel and A and at that stage, it's like you better get your product market fit right because then we're gonna pour on the gas and then we're gonna run, run, run as fast as we can and grow this thing. Well, if you're in the run, run, run and grow this thing and you say over here, there's actually an opportunity that's even bigger. It's like, well, how are we gonna rationalize that with this growth that we're after? And it's like, well, the answer is, is like, you're probably going to still go after the growth. And then as a secondary or tertiary concern, maybe you'll spend some time and resources on that that other piece if we're sort of satisfied the main premise of this company. And so it's a very, it's a very tricky thing. It's like you're allowed to innovate at the very top of that funding cycle. But as you're going down the line, it's like, okay, let's focus on execution
1: our degrees of freedom are, are pretty significantly narrowed. I look back to places like Bell Labs and Xerox Park and SRI back in the day, and sure, they were bureaucratic and inefficient, and sometimes they disappointed, but sometimes they produced innovations that we're still teasing out the implications of all of this time later.
2: They did some incredible things in terms of organizational design, where they would set up research departments that had a lot of autonomy and they would go to the mat to preserve those things, which enabled a lot of that innovation to really come out and come through. And so some of the some of the most important innovations from technology comes from some of those those investments that they made. And today you don't typically fund pure research in that way. Like it's a very different it's a very different way of approaching it than that sort of a structure.
1: How would you distill your experience into, say, two or three lessons for our listeners?
2: There's a couple things here and they're going to be kind of zoomed in towards me because of my experience in the world. I always think like when we're talking about experiences, my experience probably doesn't match a lot of other people's experiences. We all have our own unique ones in this world. One that's been really important for me and I think has been really challenging your shoulds. When I sit down and say, oh, I really should do this thing, that's kind of like a little flag for me. It's a little flag for me to say, why should I do this? What's the should that's really present here? What am I actually trying to accomplish? Because I'm very quick to load on a lot of shoulds. Like, I should do this. I should talk to that person. I should X, Y, and Z. And then all of a sudden, I'm just loaded up with my full day and my full calendar is just a bunch of shoulds for the day. And it's like, what do I actually want to do? What's the really important thing to do? And is that actually captured there? Because if there shoulds, there's probably some sort of obligation or some other piece that's present for me that's helping, that's driving my behavior. And so it's kind of a, it's a little notice for me when the shoulds show up. To question why am I doing this thing? What am I really trying to do? Because the should all starts starts and ends with me. I created that, and it's important for me to unpack it to make sure that how I'm approaching it is is how I'm just choosing to spend my time and energies really in service of myself and for my community. And I think that's really key. Because if you have a should, you have a choice there. Do you actually do it or not? That's up to you. Like you don't have to do it. No one's going to force you to do it. And if someone is, like, well, you can you can. Walk or choose not to do it, anyways. Like when they stand over you and demand that you do it, you still don't have to do it, right? So that's a really important one for me. Is like noticing those shoulds as they show up and find your preference. I think that's a that's a really key one. And then the second one, and again, this is. A little bit towards me as an Enneagram Nine. One of the things that tends to happen for me is that my wants are a little suppressed, and so I end up being able to say I say yes to a lot of things as opposed to saying what is it that I really truly want. So, for example, this week every morning I have like, I do go through my morning ritual of, of getting ready for my day and like figuring out what I, how I want what else I want to realize in my day. And so in the morning now now write down what are my wants for the day, what are my yeses for the day, what are the things I'm really going to orient around, so that way. I know at the end of the day, if I went and did the thing that I really wanted to do for the day, because otherwise you'll wake up and be like, oh, I got all these obligations. I have all these other pieces that are going on. I'm not fully in touch with what I want, but I sure can see all the other things that the world wants for me. And so for me, one of the, the really important lesson there is be really clear with yourself what it is that you want, whether it be with with work and your personal life, with whatever it is you're gonna be spending your energy on. Be really clear with that, because you're gonna be expert in that. And if you're not clear about it, someone else or something else is is gonna inform that for you.
1: Super interesting. How do you think the pandemic might affect corporations in the longer term?
2: So I think we're already seeing some of this based on a number of the coaching conversations I've been having with people. Obviously, the remote workforce thing is going to stick around for a while. People that I've been speaking with, they're not looking forward to commuting again. There's been a very, very public from the Bay Area perspective, people moving to Tahoe, people moving out of the state. And so I like to talk about this as where we were 10 years ago in terms of technology supporting remote work all that stuff has just compressed and gone out to everyone at the same time. And so there's this really fascinating piece where usually they talk about two or three weeks being the sort of the timeline for a new habit to be ingrained for people. Well, we're (laughs) what, 14 months into it at this point? (laughs) So there's new habits, there's new behaviors that we've learned and it's going to stick around in one flavor or another. And so I think this idea of particularly within knowledge work of people working in variety of different places is here to stay. I think we did it on the margin before. And there were cases where people would try to prioritize that as a company priority. But this is just the way of the world now. And I think that isn't going to change.
1: I mean, I'm definitely in camp. I will work from home as long as I possibly can because it's enabled a a different pace of workday for me. I mean, I might still work into the evenings, but I'll run errands in the afternoon. In between meetings, I'll go out and sit in the garden and check in with my partner. It's just a very different, and to me, at least, more human arc of the hours of the the workday.
2: I I totally relate to that. I do think it also requires people to orient on how do they really want to spend their time during their day. Like it gives you a lot of flexibility. And if you're able to, I think structure in a way that serves you and what you're doing, that works really, really well. There's a flip side of this, which is like, well, now I'm working from home and to work all the time or, Hey, I I don't naturally reach out to connect to people. And I relied on work to do that and being in the workplace. And if I'm remote, like that's a very painful place to be. So I very much hear that. I'm excited for the flexibility that remote work has had for me and the ability to run my practice from from my house and a variety of other things. And that's been really really empowering in a lot of ways that I I really appreciate. A second thing which I think is gonna be affecting corporations long-term is that there's been this exuberance that has been present within startups, I think for about 10, 11 years post-financial crisis of 2008 that has just been building and building and building. I remember coming back in 2013 or 2014 after traveling for a year and just looking around in the street and just seeing all of this energy that had grown. And like there was this very sky's the limit attitude and a very free attitude around capital. I believe over this last year, we've seen a lot more return to fundamentals for businesses, thinking about how are they actually exercising that capital? How are they going to operate? How do they think about their financial plans? A lot more diligence around how people think about expenses. And so there's almost like this contraction that's happening, which I think is going to create a really healthy set of companies that are coming out of this set of changes. Like There's this, this muscle that hasn't been exercised as much in a while, which is how do we deal with really strong headwinds? And I think that is going to be a strengthening of the next tr- crop of innovative businesses that really come out. And I'm really, I'm really excited for that. I know there's challenges, of course, that comes with that. But I think I've personally been excited for this return to kind of fundamentals and this return to really building businesses for the long term as opposed to, hey, we'll just build something, get some cheap capital and and see if it works.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a rule of thumb for investors that great companies are built in the downturns. I would also say as a loyal San Franciscan that San Francisco is actually pretty great during the downturns because the people who don't particularly care all go and the people who are really in it to build something are still here.
2: Yes. I think that's very, very true. You get to decide – how you want to orient and deal with it. Are you in this for the long haul or are you in it for the boom times?
1: We've talked a lot about burnout. What are some strategies that you personally use to manage or avoid it?
2: Yeah, so this has been very important for me throughout my career. So I'll talk a little bit about some high level things and I'll talk about at least one strat, one very sort of uh, tactical thing that, that people can do to help themselves in terms of avoiding burnout. So for me, I think, there's an important piece of setting clear boundaries and expectations. So, you've got the anxiety of the unknown, particularly whether it be with your co founder or other executives that you're working with or board. Like, be really clear about what those boundaries and expectations are. And acknowledging how I'm feeling along the way is very important. Like I can't just keep my feelings all all sort of crammed down. I've, I need to like, I'm very open about them. I talk about how I'm feeling, like whether I'm frustrated, excited, sad, disappointed, whatever it is. And also make time for activities that help sort of uh, invigorate yourself and refuel yourself. In terms of like something very tactical that you can do, this is a great practice that I do on a pretty regular basis, which is like an energy review. And what I mean by that is take your calendar for the week, print out your whole calendar, look at all the entire calendar, every single meeting that's in there, and then color code your calendar. If something gives you energy that you look at, you're like, oh, my energy goes up. I'm excited for that. Make it green. All right. If there's something in your calendar you look at and you're saying... Oh, wow. Yeah, I really am not excited about that. Mark it red. And then just keep track of the percentage of time that's green and red for your week. And for the green ones, great, cool. Keep those things going. And for the red ones, you can make two decisions about it. One, do I stop doing it? Right? This could be delegating it. Maybe you find out that you're actually not needed there. Or if you do need to keep going to it, figure out how you want to change it. Maybe there's something you can bring to that meeting or that discussion. Maybe there's some way for you to be able to inject some fun into it. Maybe it's shortening the links, changing the structure of it. But find a way to make sure that your days aren't just big walls of red. Because what you have really when you wake up to when you go to sleep is just your time. And if all of your time is being sunk into things that make you feel drained, you are going to burn out. I guarantee it. And so by going down and doing this calendar and energy review, it'll allow you to sit down and restructure your day and take responsibility for your day and figure out how you can actually shift it into a way that really serves you better
1: i love that you're marie Kondoing your calendar that's super cool does it spark joy
2: yeah pretty much like you want to wake up in the morning and be like i'm excited for my day not wake up and say how long can i stay in, in my bed and stay warm um, and cozy before i have to grind through my day right so it's very much so that that mindset of how do you spark joy within your day
1: And it also reminds me of conversations with my two favorite bosses, Ravi, who I'm working for now, and Sam Ramji, who's now at at DataStax, both of whom, when I went to work for them, asked me, what is it that feeds you? What is it that nurtures your soul? And in both cases, it was, I like mentoring and coaching young entrepreneurs. And so building my career around that has made it much more sustainable and much more fun for me. Brad, what is the best way for our listeners to connect or follow your work?
2: Yeah, so I'm not super active on the social medias, part of managing my attention, but you can find me on LinkedIn as Brad Henriksen, and you can also find me at my leadership practice, which is HenriksenLeadership.com. Both of those, I post some content on and off, and there's also link to, links to a number of resources that I find to be really helpful for people as they're, as they're thinking about navigating their careers and their, and their companies.
1: What does the future look like for you personally? Any plans?
2: For sure. So for me, it's continue to develop my leadership practice. It's one of the ways which I love to help stay connected and help to support people in their, in their growth for their careers. I'll probably either eventually start another startup or found another startup. This is actually one of these areas that I'm working with my executive coach on, which is I've been this like, Four or five months journey right now of just dis- discovering and exploring what I want to do next. I'm sure I'm going to go back and I'm going to either found or join another startup. Yeah, and so it's just a very interesting time. Like for me, it's it's a it's a period of of giving back to others and figuring out how I can support people in their journey. Those are the really big threads for me.
1: You get to wave a magic wand and the next five years of our industry pan out exactly as you would like them to. What do things look like in 2026?
2: 2026 feels like a long ways away right now. I see a lot of these tech regulations that are showing up. And I really want to see companies move out of this SaaS model that we've gotten into, where there's, there's a lot of companies that are just, hey, how can you build software that builds revenue, I I would really love to see this move to a space where it's like hey there are all these different types of of spaces that we can really be in that's outside of just pure software technology whether it be biotech or thinking about energy or thinking about healthcare i think there's so many opportunities that are out there for us to do good in this world and also to really account for the overall costs of the companies that we're building that there's like a there's this notion of taking full responsibility and moving into spaces that Um, I haven't seen as much uh, investment in that I I would just absolutely love to see the technology industry shift to a little bit more.
1: So things like product carbon lifecycle and cradle to grave sustainability?
2: Yes, like those sorts of things. Obviously, I care a lot about mindfulness and mental health. And so I think there's a lot in that space that could be done when we talk about secondary effects. I think there's been a lot of negative impacts and positive impacts to mental health as a result of some of the things that's happened in technology. And I would love to see some of these things invested in and see really stronger support for people in their journeys. I think it's one of the areas that we've somehow missed a bit over the last 10 years.
1: What else should I have asked you?
2: I think that covers most of it. I'm really excited by a lot of the talent that I've seen coming into the industry. Like there's been this entrepreneurial spirit and this deep desire to create impact that is really refreshing to me. I think for some of the downside of the boom times, like one of the really big upsides has been people haven't, when people get an idea, they want to bring it out and, and realize it. And this is something which is, I think a really beautiful aspect of, of innovation and something to be really, really celebrated. And so I hope that continues. Uh, and I hope that we continue to diversify the ideas that people people continue to diversify the ideas that they have um, and really continuing to deliver on those. So I think it's a very exciting time in terms of the talent that's in the industry.
1: Yeah, I agree that the kids are all right. They're, they're bringing amazing ideas to the table and it's, it's so exciting to see. Brad, it's been an absolute delight to have you on the show. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much, Rachel. It's been really fantastic chatting with you and I really enjoyed our time together.
0: This has been Alchemist X, Innovators Inside. If you enjoy our show, we'd be grateful if you could give us a rating or comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. You can find the transcript of this conversation plus links to whatever books, articles, TV shows, and apps we talked about on alchemistaccelerator.com forward slash podcasts. If you'd like to chat more about our corporate programs for spin-ins and spin-outs, email us at innovators at alchemistaccelerator.com. We love hearing from you, so stay connected by following Alchemist X on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Until next time, this has been Alchemist X, Innovators Inside.